0: The story of how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is 1st and 2nd Kings, part 2. Well now, in the last talk I gave a kind of overview of the both books of kings, which in the Hebrew Old Testament are one book, just the kingdoms of Israel. And I want now to go over the story again, but looking in greater detail at some of the kings and some of the crises that are uh, covered. And the first king I'd like to say a bit more about is King Solomon. He begins the book of kings, And it's his reign that seems on the one hand so good and on the other hand so bad. Solomon was a good man. He began well. In fact, at the beginning of his reign, God appeared to him in a dream and said, I'll give you anything you ask me. Now that's a real test of a man's character. If God said to you, I'll give you anything you ask me, wealth, fame, power, whatever you ask me, I'll give you. And Solomon said, wisdom please. He said, because I'm inexperienced as a king and if I'm going to be a good king, I need to be a wise king and I need wisdom that I don't have. And God said, because you asked for wisdom, I'll give you everything you didn't ask for as well. I'll give you wealth and fame and power, but above all I'll give you wisdom. When he woke up, he was faced with a situation that really needed wisdom. Here were two prostitutes arguing about one baby. They both had babies but during the night one had been smothered or had a cot death and was gone and now each of them was saying it was the other one's baby that died and that's mine. Now can you imagine a more difficult situation for a judge to sort out than two women each swearing the baby was theirs but Solomon had asked for wisdom and he got it. And uh, the Lord said, just tell them to cut the baby in half, give half to each. And as soon as Solomon said that, the real mother said, let her have it. The one who wasn't the mother said, yes, cut it in half, because that would kill the other one's baby. And it was solved. So simple. If i can give you a modern illustration, because a word of wisdom is available to all who've been baptised in the Spirit. Uh, a young couple came up to me in a meeting in Islington in London and they said, Mr. Pawson, if you can't help us, we're going to get divorced. I said, well I've only got five minutes before I have to leave. And I said, how long have you been married? Three months. And I said, you're going to get divorced after three months. I said, how did you meet? And then it came out, she offered to be a prison visitor and they sent her to a man's prison to visit men. Now that's asking for trouble Anyway. Anyway, she met this very rough lad and led him to the Lord, he was soundly converted, she taught him the Bible, she discipled him and after some years he came out and he said, I have no family, no home, nowhere to go. And she was getting on for 30, single girl living on her own in a flat, she had no family either. He said, you know, I'm very fond of you, in fact he said, I've fallen in love with you. She said, well I like you. And they went straight away from the prison gates and got married moved into the apartment and then they found out they were totally incompatible because it's not enough just to be two Christians, you know. And uh, he never used a knife and fork, ate with his fingers. When he undressed at night he just dropped his clothes where he stood and in the morning jumped into them and pulled them up. (laughs) And she'd been brought up with flowers and lace curtains and everything (laughs) in the drawer, you know. And in every way they were totally incompatible and after three months they said, we've made the biggest mistake in our lives, can you help us? five minutes. <laughs> I said, Lord, a word of wisdom. And he gave me one and I said, listen carefully, this is what you're to do. You're to do week on, week off. The first week, you both do things his way and you, pointing to the girl, you've got to throw your clothes on the floor and learn to eat with your fingers. But the next week, you're both doing things her way and you've got to learn to put your clothes in the drawer and to eat with a knife and fork. And I said, you're to do that week on, week off. And the girl said, that's so weird, it's got to be of the Lord. <laughs> and uh, they said, what else? I said, I've nothing else. And off they went and I've never seen them since. But I had, a, I had a lovely letter six months later. Dear David, we never knew married life could be so wonderful. We are blissfully happy. trouble is they never told me if they were still doing it. <laughs> but uh, you see, now... I've got the answer, I can write a book called week on week off. (laughs) But I'll tell you something, I've never passed that word on to anybody else because God gave the word of wisdom for them. James says, do you lack wisdom? Then ask for it and don't doubt that you'll get it. Well Solomon asked for it and he got it and he sorted it out. Wise men, He also wanted to share his wisdom with others so he collected 3,000 proverbs and he wrote 1,005 songs according to the book of Kings but God only published about six of them. Now I have a theory about this because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines and God refused to publish 999 of his songs. I reckon he wrote one for each of them And the only one you've got is about the girl of the Song of Solomon, right? So poor old Solomon, would you call him wise if he had 700 mothers-in-law? You know, actually Solomon was like a lot of us. He had a lot of wisdom for everybody else, but none for himself. That was the tragedy. He wrote three books, Proverbs, Proverbs. Or well, Song of Songs first when he was a young man, so much in love that he, he forgot about God altogether and God has no mention in the Song of Solomon. That's when he had already 60 wives, so he was well on in his career, but he met the right one. And then he wrote Proverbs and he wrote that when he was middle-aged, now son, watch the woman. <laughs> You've got to be middle-aged to talk like that, haven't you? You know? I heard a teenage girl say to her mother, what did you do at my age that makes you so worried about me? (laughs) And then he wrote Ecclesiastes, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the legs tremble and the teeth are few and the eyes are dim. You can see Solomon's whole life, but you see, because it was a time of peace and prosperity, then philosophy came in. And he had time to develop his interests in music and agriculture and architecture. He developed many interests, but none of them satisfied him. And the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the saddest books in the Bible. When he reached old age and felt it was all vanity, all pointless, that he was getting off just where he got on. That's Solomon. He did so many good things and he built the temple for the Lord. With the materials and the plans from his father David, he got the temple built. It was a magnificent temple. That gives you just a rough idea of it. There's Solomon's palace and here's the temple. It took seven years to build the temple and twelve to build his own palace. Interesting. But uh, one of the most fascinating things it says in the book of Kings about the temple being built was that though it was built of cut stone, the sound of hammer and chisel was never heard. For many, many years people couldn't understand that. How could you carve all those stones and never the sound of a hammer or a chisel be heard? Until somebody found a hole in the mountain, Mount Maria it is, at the top end near Calvary, there's a hole in the cliff. And they went in and they found a gigantic cave. You can go into it if ever you go, go around the, past the Damascus Gate and look for a little door in the cliff wall. And when you get in, it is vast, it's the size of the Albert Hall, it, it's enormous. And the floor is covered with millions of little chips and the rock has been cut and it goes for yards and yards down under the temple. And the rock here is so soft you can cut it with a penknife or with your fingernail. But when you bring a piece out into the atmosphere, it oxidises and goes quite hard. There's a bit. That's absolutely hard rock. But it's been cut with a penknife. It's so soft you can just cut it like that. And then it oxidises and goes hard and white. Beautiful, pure white stone. In other words, all the stone came from underneath in this huge cave. They were cutting these blocks to fit and then sending them up. If you go to the Wailing Wall as it used to be, they don't call it that now, they call it the Western Wall. If you ask for the Wailing Wall now, they send you to the income tax office. <laughs> but the, the, West, the Western Wall, when you look at it, there are blocks of stone 40 feet long by 3 feet by 3 feet, which weigh 100 tonnes. It was cut out of this soft stuff and then brought out on rollers and put in place. And that's how Solomon built the temple. Well, it's a fascinating tale, but the sad thing is that Solomon had a weakness. We know what it was. He had too many wives. He married the daughter of Pharaoh. Because she was an Egyptian, of course, she couldn't live in the holy city. So he actually built her a palace just north of the temple, outside the city wall and that was discovered last year. If you saw the recent television programme, they found a palace with Egyptian architecture with the lotus leaves around the pillars, the only Egyptian artefacts in the whole of Israel that have been discovered and it's just north of the Damascus Gate, it's underneath the monastery. And they discovered the palace that Solomon built for Pharaoh's doors. Interesting how many things are confirming the Bible as people dig around in the dust and rubble of the Middle East. So Solomon gave them that magnificent temple. It says it was 480 years after the Exodus when he opened the temple. And if you want to read a most inspiring prayer, it's the prayer that Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. It was opened during the seventh month, the feast of tabernacles and the glory of the Lord came down as it had come down on the tabernacle, the tent earlier. It's a lovely story and yet there he was, his many wives were bringing pagan gods into the very palace in the city where God had put his name and the whole thing was having this profound effect on all the people. Furthermore, to get this built, he was virtually using forced labour and heavy taxation and of course this made the north even more resentful when they had to pay taxes to build something in the south. And you can see as you read the story that Solomon was actually laying the ground for catastrophe. But God said to him, because you built this temple for me, it will be in your son's reign that he will lose the kingdom. Interesting. But that is in fact exactly what happened and this unrest in his son's reign of course led to this divided kingdom. Now I want to single out one or two things in the rest of kings in detail. Just out of interest, because he was using different chronicles or records, one from the north and one from the south, the account of each king is a little different. When he is writing about the kings of Israel, he begins with the date when they began to reign, the name of the capital city where they reigned, the length of the reign. Then came the judgment, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Then we get the name of his father. Then he names the source of reference for his facts, where he got the facts from, which record. He then finishes with the death and mentions the son who took over unless somebody else took the throne. And in every case, the kings of the north are described that way. And compared to the first king of the north, Jeroboam. Jeroboam was this man and not a very good king. And so it usually says, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, just like Jeroboam. But in the south, using different records, there's a slight variation, the date when they began to reign, but then the age at which they began to reign, and some of them were boy kings. The length of the reign is the same. Then he gave the name of the mother, not the name of the father. I don't know why, don't ask me, but there's been an interesting change. Today you're a Jew if your mother was a Jew, whereas in Bible days you were a Jew if your father was. There's something going on here. Then there is a judgement as to whether they were good or evil. In the north, every king was evil. In the south, some were good and some were evil. Then he says his source reference, the death, and he always mentions the burial of the seven kings, unlike the north. mentions their grave and then the son or successor. But these kings are evil compared to David. These kings are evil compared with Jeroboam and the good ones here are good because they are different. That's just to help you to understand. Now let's look at the number of good kings and bad kings. It wasn't quite as simple as good. There were some who were very good and when they were good they were very good (laughs) and there were some who were good, some who were bad and some who were very bad when they were bad, they were very bad. And there was one queen. Now God had made a covenant with David that as long as his statutes were kept, there would always be a son on his throne, not a daughter. And Israel was never intended to have queens, but we'll see there was one Now I've done the colours so that you can see very quickly what was happening. Let's look at the north and you see straight away that most of them were very bad and a few were just bad, but none were good and certainly none were very good. And the intriguing thing is that though the north had 20 kings and the south had 20 kings, the south survived another 140 years because good kings reign longer, do you see? Same number of kings, roughly, but all bad kings, so look how quickly they were replaced. Some of them only survived a couple of months and then were killed. It is a really sad story. One of the worst, of course, was a man called Jehu, but quite a bad one was Ahab and he went and married a foreign princess, a Phoenician from Tyre and her Phoenician name was Primrose. It was rather unfortunate that in Hebrew it meant garbage. The name was Jezebel and so he married Princess Primrose, who in Hebrew was known as Princess Garbage. (laughs) But that's Jezebel and she was a horror. And you need to know about her because even in one of the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation, there was a Jezebel wrecking a church and the spirit of Jezebel has survived. Jezebel had Ahab round her little finger and Ahab saw a vineyard and he he had a lovely big estate but he saw this nice little vineyard and it was owned by a man called Naboth and Ahab said to his wife one day, you know, that's a nice little vineyard, I wouldn't mind having that in our estate. And she said, why don't you? Oh, he said it belongs to Naboth. She said, we can soon deal with that. She had the man killed. Ahab got his little back garden. That's Jezebel. And it was in that day that the first great prophet Elijah was sent to deal with the situation. If ever you get the chance, you must climb Mount Carmel. It's 12 miles long, it juts out to the sea. But at the eastern end of it, the inland end, there is a gigantic depression on the top of the mountain or just below the summit, which is a natural arena where 30,000 people could gather to watch something happening. And we know it must be the place where Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal, whom Jezebel had introduced to the palace. Uh, because there's a spring there which never runs dry even in drought. Though there'd be no rain for three and a half years, that spring was still going. A friend of mine, Leonard, who died on Christmas Day a few years ago at the age of 90 or 99 was it? But anyway, he was out there for many years as a policeman during the British Mandate and he had an amateur hobby of archaeology and he went up to this arena and he spent three days on his hands and knees going backwards and forwards to see if there was any remains of Elijah's altar. Do you remember the story? When Elijah built an altar and challenged the prophets of Baal to build their altar alongside and he said, now you call for fire. It was a very clever challenge because we now know that the altars of Baal had a tunnel underneath and a priest would climb along with a box of matches. And when the people cried out for Baal, and the fire came. And so Elijah said, now build one out here in the open. (laughs) See? I mean, it's brilliant. He said, well watch you build it, and then you produce the fire like you usually do. And uh, Elijah was a very bold man. And he said, now I'll build an altar for the Lord. And he said, not only that, but when I've got the wood and the sacrifice... I insist you go and fill buckets of that spring and pour water on the top and then let's see who's God. And his boldness led him to mock the priests in such a way that if his experiment failed, he'd have been a goner. They shouted, God, Baal, Baal. He said, shout a bit louder, maybe he's on holiday, maybe he's on the toilet, shout a bit louder. He actually said that. Of course, in your polite English Bibles, it says, maybe he has turned aside. (laughs) But in fact, that's a euphemism for gone into the bushes to relieve himself. He's making fun of Baal. Can you imagine their anger if his didn't work? And then at three o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the evening sacrifice, and now God, you show them. Now, my friend Leonard crawled around looking for anything, and he found a little stone the size of a a goose egg. And on one side was a sheet of green glass fused to the stone. Some of you have seen it, have you? Uh, Yes. And he didn't know what it was. And he took it to the professor of geology in the Hadassah University in Jerusalem and said, Can you tell me what that is? And the professor said, Well, I can tell you this you didn't find that in Israel. And he said, yes I did, but I'm not going to tell you where till you tell me what it is. And the professor said, leave it with me for three days, but do you mind if we take a thin slice off it to look at it microscopically? And Leonard said, fine. He went back after three days and the professor said, you're going to be terribly disappointed. Why? Well, it's just a lump of ordinary limestone. And Leonard said, but what's this sheet of green glass on the side? He said, I couldn't scratch that with my wife's diamond ring. And the professor said, well, he said, that's limestone too, but it's been subject to the most indescribable heat. He said, it's the kind of thing you find after an atomic bomb's exploded. And Leonard knew he'd got a piece of Elijah's altar. And He carried that in his pocket for the rest of his life. <laughs> the fire of God had been on that, melted it and crystallised it out. When I took a group up there, I got them all on their hands and knees looking for me. <laughs> And they'd been looking for about 10 minutes and then suddenly they stood up and walked towards me and I said, have you found something? They said, no, we're not going to go on looking either. I said, why, have you gone on strike? They said, we're not having our pastor worshipping relics. <laughs> <laughs> so I never got one. But that was the challenge. And then Jezebel heard about it and she threatened him and Elijah ran for his life. Amazing, that one woman could frighten the prophet of the Lord and he fled, went down to the Negev and was so exhausted, having run all the way, that he went to sleep and that's when an angel came and cooked a meal for him. I think that's lovely, one of the lovely, did you know angels could cook? But how lovely of God, instead of hammering him into the ground for running away, he said, you know, you haven't eaten for such a long time, I've sent an angel. Cook a meal for you now. Get that inside you and then we're going to talk. Beautiful. Elisha followed him, of course. One little word about Elisha. He was plowing when Elijah called him, and Elisha said, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now, that does not mean I want to be twice the prophet you've been. It means very simply that if a man had four sons, his estate was divided into five when he died and the double portion went to the eldest son who therefore became the heir of the family business and got the extra money to help with the responsibility. Do you follow? So in asking for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, he was asking to be his heir, to take over the business. And Elijah said, if you see me go, you can be my heir. And Elijah was one of the few people who never died, like Enoch. But Enoch walked into heaven, Elijah rode. And uh, Elisha saw him go up in a chariot to heaven and saw Elijah's robe fall down. And Elisha picked up that robe and he walked to the Jordan River because before they'd crossed the Jordan River, Elijah had taken the robe and just swung it over the river and the water had parted. And Elisha said, Now let's see if the God of Elijah is with me. And he took the robe and the water parted. They're so different these two and I want you to notice this, Elijah was the the fighter, the preacher, the man who challenged the people. Elisha was quite different, Elisha raised the dead, little village, widow's son, he raised the dead. It's called Shunem and that's only half a mile from a little village called Nain. That strike a chord with you? And Elisha fed 4,000 people with a few barley loaves of bread. That strike a chord? See, we're going to see that John the Baptist and Jesus, who were cousins, were in fact Elijah and Elisha back again. They were prefiguring those two cousins. It's a remarkable story. You should study Elijah and Elisha. Can you see that God was sending prophet after prophet after prophet? To warn these people of their bad ways. From Ahiah, or Ahijah, Yehu, Eliyahu, or Elijah to you, Micaiah, Elisha, Jonah. Jonah appears in the book of Kings. People think Jonah's a myth. Why is he in the book of Kings then? And Amos, and finally Hosea. Hosea, what a man! One day, God said to him, I want you to go into the street and find a prostitute. What? I'm a preacher. What do you want me to do with her? Marry her. Then what, Lord? Well, then you're going to have children. But I better warn you, she will love the first child, she won't like the second, and the third will not even be yours, Mr. Preacher. Sure enough, the three children arrived. And then what, Lord? Well, then she'll go back on the street, she'll go back to her old profession. Well what am I to do with three kids? You're to go and look for her and pay the pimp money to get her back and bring her home again and love her. And what then, Lord? Then you're to go and tell the children of Israel, that's how I feel about them. Terribly emotional book is Hosea. It was God's last appeal to a faithless wife who's running after other gods. Amazing appeal and yet it fell on deaf ears and they went. Looking here, you see we haven't got nearly so many bad kings. Uh, We've got one horror, the Queen Atalia. And you know who she was? She was Jezebel's daughter and she married the king of Judah in the south. He should have known better. And she was so jealous, she wanted to be the first queen of Israel so what could she do? She systematically killed all the children of David's royal line, one after the other, so she could be queen. But the high priest of that day saw it coming and he kidnapped the youngest boy, Joash, and he hid him. And when it all came out, Atalia was dead and Joash was sitting on the throne as a boy. You can see they had two very good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah. Hezekiah was contemporary with Isaiah and you can read part of the story in uh, Isaiah, but there's again a mixture of good and bad. Hezekiah was a good king, he did many good things. It was he who dug the tunnel to bring the water into Jerusalem and make it safe against enemies, but he did many other good things. But then he was terribly ill and two men came all across the Arabian desert from a little city called Babylon with a get well card from the king of Babylon. And they came and said, uh, King Hezekiah, our king in little Babylon, has heard about your sickness and he hopes you'll get well soon. And Hezekiah was flattered that somebody so far away knew about his illness and was concerned. Well, he said, would you like to see him around my palace? And he showed him all around the palace and, and he said, would you like to see him around the temple? the treasures in our temple and he showed him all the gold and silver in the temple and then he said, go back and thank you king for sending his get well card by you. And Isaiah came into the palace and said, who were those men? Oh, they were visitors from Babylon, brought a nice message from the king, hope I'll be better soon. What did you show them? Oh, I showed them all my palace and I even took them into the temple and showed them the gold and silver treasures. The Babylonians will come and take away everything you showed them. Mind you, it didn't happen for a long time, but it did happen. So Hezekiah was a mixture, both good and bad, but he did some very good things. The other king they had who did a lot of good was a king who came to the throne at only eight years of age. And uh, Josiah was born the same year as a man called Jeremiah. They were contemporaries, literally. And when he was eight, Jeremiah was eight, but we don't hear a word of Jeremiah in this account. Josiah was concerned that the temple was looking shabby and dusty and the paint was peeling, so he ordered a spring clean of the temple. And while they were cleaning the temple up, they came across an old cupboard covered with cobwebs, and when they opened it, inside was the scroll of Deuteronomy. hadn't been read in years. They brought it to King Josiah and when he read it and read the curses, he said, do you realise we've done everything that deserves a curse? He said, we must quickly put it right and he ordered a national reformation and they destroyed all the high places of the pagans, they destroyed all the idols and it really seemed as if it would clean the situation up, but it didn't because you can't make people good by act of parliament. You can't force people to change their hearts. You can change their behaviour by law, but you can't change their hearts. And Josiah made a big mistake. He decided to go to war with Egypt and he was killed at Megiddo. They lost this good boy king and as soon as he died the nation went right back because he was followed by bad kings. I've skipped over one of the worst kings Hezekiah the good king was followed by Manasseh, a very bad king. Manasseh got into Satan worship. He sacrificed even his own baby sons to the devil in the valley of Hinnom, which later became Gehenna. Dreadful place. And the worst thing Hezekiah did was he was so angry with Isaiah the prophet for his preaching that he ordered him bound and put inside a hollow tree trunk. And then he ordered two carpenters with a big saw to cut the tree in half. That's how Isaiah died under the cruel Manasseh. Have you read Hebrews 11 where it says, some were sawn asunder? That's Isaiah, that awful King Manasseh. And so the thing just fizzles out towards the end. It really is a very sad tale. What I've just picked up one or two um, outstanding things there to show you. What are we really saying? God being God always gave them full warning that they mustn't go on as they are and he always does. People who think that they will be judged for ignorance are wrong. The whole principle of the Bible is God only judges us for what we know is wrong. So people who haven't heard about Jesus will not be sent to hell because they haven't heard about Jesus but because they've done wrong in their own conscience. See, everybody knows the difference between right and wrong. They've got a conscience. And to be justified before God, all you need to do is say, God, I have always followed my conscience. I've always done what I know to be right. But who could say that? That's the problem. And so look at the prophets they sent I've looked at those in the south, look at those in the north. Shemaiah, Obadiah, Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk and finally Daniel. They all had the same message. They were all warning. But people preferred false prophets and we know what false prophets are. They say everything's going to be all right. Cheer up, it'll never happen. False prophets always have a message of peace peace, peace when there is no peace. They try to heal the wounds of my people lightly, said Jeremiah. False prophets don't hear from God, they give the people what the people want to hear. That is still the temptation every preacher faces today. Don't disturb people, don't upset them, comfort them, tell them what they want to hear. And false prophets do that. True prophets tell the truth and pay the price. And through the prophets, God's words came before his deeds. The warnings came before disaster. That's the message that is written through and through the book of Kings. Let me finish. These things, says the New Testament, were written for our benefit so that we might learn what God will do to us if we go the same way. The church is not secure in itself and there are two things that are happening in our day in the church which were condemned here. One is syncretism and that means to unite one religion with another. When Elijah challenged the people of Israel he said, how long halt you with two opinions? And I used to think the word halt there means somebody who was standing still and wondering which way to go. It doesn't mean that, the word halt means lame, halt and lame. And it means they were walking with one foot in Yahweh their God and the other foot in Baal. How long are you going to walk like this with one foot in one religion and one in another? And we now see in the church syncretism, we see festivals of faith. We see people going to Canterbury Cathedral, the Baha'is and the Hindus and the Muslims going there to pray for the trees. This is happening in Christian churches because there is pressure on us even from the Duke of Edinburgh. He's appealing to religions to unite to save planet earth, the environment and the wild animals on it. We have Prince Charles who's willing to be called defender of faith but not defender of the faith. We are into an era when it's become fashionable to say all religions lead to God. That's syncretism. The other thing, we are into pagan festivals, of which harvest festivals and Christmas and blessing of everything from pets to plows and fishermen's nets, is all the kind of practice. Halloween, Halloween, Why do people carve pumpkins? They're carving demons' faces. And if we're not careful, Christians get hooked on these things as well. Christmas is the most obvious example. It's a totally pagan festival, and it comes from days before Christ, when they burned logs, yule logs. They sang carols, they ate and they drank overmuch. It was the midwinter festival. And When the first missionary came to England, he sent word back to Rome and saying, I can't get them away from this pagan festival in midwinter. And Pope Gregory said, well, if you can't lick them, join them. Turn it into a Christian festival. <laughs> That's how it's come. I believe we've got to get Christ out of Christmas, Amen. not get him back into it. Because it is basically pagan and it's the pagan side that takes over. Well, need I go on? We see in the book of Kings the dangers are becoming too mixed up in other religions and other ways of life and other moralities, and it's happening. But the God who is the King of the universe is also our judge, and sooner or later we will lose what He's given to us unless we wake up. That's the lesson from the book of Kings. It's a sharp lesson if it happened to them, it can happen to us too. So God give us wisdom to understand the lessons he's trying to teach us, that we may learn the easy way by learning from others instead of learning the hard way for ourselves. You can either learn wisdom because it's been passed on to you, or you can learn it in the school of experience whose colours are black and blue. Two ways of getting wisdom – That's why Solomon wanted to pass it on to his son. Now, son, take it from me. Don't learn the hard way yourself. Take it from me. The Bible is able to make us wise unto salvation. It doesn't make you clever, but it'll make you wise and avoid the terrible mistakes that God's people of old made. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidporson.org.